0: Good morning. good morning. It's good to be with you all. Oh, still, we're still getting there. Just many of us. Um, thank you for joining us, whether you're here here in Miners Cafeteria or if you're joining us online, it's great to be with you all. I was reminded it has been one year since we started meeting back in person. One year. September 26, 2021. Yeah, that was our first official Sunday back after 18 months of online services uh, I'm really just so grateful for this last year, for the folks that have found us, and for the folks that have found their way back. It's uh, just a joy to, to be with you all. Uh, a week ago, Pastor Matthew let, us, let off by letting us know that there were just over 100 days left in the year. And uh, this week, as we officially entered the fall season, we crossed that 100-day mark, so now there are just under 100 days left in the year, uh, in case you're someone who likes to keep track of those things. And if you're not, well, you probably won't remember this anyway. (laughs) One thing I do want you to remember is this quote from 20th century theologian Albert Schweitzer. He says, example is not the main thing in influencing others, it is the only thing. Example is not the main thing in influencing others, it is the only thing. We are at the beginning of our fall series in the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at chapters 6 through 10. And the focus of these next couple of months is following Jesus. Following Jesus. Following not in the sense that we tend to use it nowadays as you know, passive consumption of someone else's content with an occasional tap to show approval and an occasional tap to, to share that uh, with others. But following in the sense that Jesus meant it when he offered that invitation to the first followers following in the sense that Jesus means it still when he presents that invitation to each of us follow me spend time with me learn to live how i do learn how to love as i do copy me imitate me become like me that's what it means to become a follower and to be a follower of Jesus to be a, a disciple of Jesus it's to be a student of Jesus and the way of Jesus to cultivate the character of Christ it's to come to care about the concerns of Christ, is to carry the commission of Christ as a citizen of his kingdom. We learn from his example. Unfortunately, that's not the only thing uh, people learn from the example of those who call themselves Christians, is it? Uh, An often referenced report from a group called Barna from about 10 years ago noted that Christians were largely perceived by non-Christians as hypocritical and judgmental. Those were the top two uh, responses. And I would be stunned if our reputation has shrugged off those labels in the last years since that survey. Church leadership scandals seem to be everywhere, and especially more so now in the Protestant, and particularly in the white evangelical spaces. Pastors of large, well-known churches have been forced to step down and resign because of both spiritual and sexual abuse. Uh, Some of you I know have been listening to or have finished a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which documents uh, just that the, the meteoric ascent and the catastrophic decline of a church in Seattle led by a pastor called Mark Driscoll, It's a heartbreaking and infuriating account of not just one man 's hubris and the devastation that he caused under the banner of Jesus, but also the, the culture and the community that that enabled him that allowed him and that lack of accountability to, to continue and i 'll be honest, it was a hard listen. Uh, there were moments that triggered memories of uh, spiritually abusive situations that i have been in, and, and I just had to take a break. I just had to turn it off. Just take a break. Because it was not just, uh, as I was listening, it wasn't just an objective investigative piece. It became a reminder of the trauma that I had gone through. And the thing is, like we all have similar experiences. Everyone, everyone has been failed by a leader at some point in their life, Christian or otherwise. Uh, as a kid, I remember being utterly devastated to discover that my favorite soccer player had left his wife for a younger model. I still feel disappointed when, when, when sports stars' uh, you know, personal lives don't match up to their athletic ability. Psychiatrist Scott Peck writes in his book, The Road Less Traveled, that one of the stages of growing up is giving up the distorted images of one's parents. Giving up the distorted images of one's parents. In other words, realizing they're not perfect. This holds true for other leaders in our lives. We learn our political leaders, our our youth leaders, our our, our mentors, our teachers, none of them are perfect. Now, this isn't always a bad thing to to, to realize that that those images are distorted, that we need to let go of them, you know, because sometimes when we we feel like our leaders have let us down, it's actually because we had unrealistic expectations, right, That, that they would be perfect, or that they wouldn't make mistakes, or that they would do everything that you wanted them to do. Now, pretty much everyone I know doesn't do everything I want them to do. This is especially true when it comes to my kids. That doesn't necessarily make them a failure. That means that I have to examine what kind of expectations I'm putting on them, right? So that's not the kind of hurt that I'm talking about. I'm talking about those situations we've all experienced where we've been let down, where we've been hurt and harmed, or maybe even traumatized by a leader's failure, and especially a spiritual leader. All of us can relate to the feelings of hurt that come with being let down by a leader, the the damage it can cause in our trust in people, uh, the, the, the effects of unease or the fear of commitment within a communal setting, a community, that may still linger to this day as a result. Spiritual trauma, because of its nature, because of its depth and because of its expansiveness, it goes so deep, and it can be so so much more unconscious than we even know. You know some of you who are here today you 've been hurt by church leaders before, and maybe it 's even a miracle that you 're in these in this cafeteria, but you're asking, you know, what kind of church is this? What kind of pastor is this? Are they one of these churches that preaches one thing and does another? You know, I wonder how they handle their money. I wonder how they treat this group of people. I wonder what they're really like. Our experiences of leadership trauma, of spiritual trauma, they, they will impact us for the rest of our lives. They're part of our experience now. The question is whether we allow them to help us grow or to hold us back, whether we allow God to work and weave them into something beautiful, or whether we simply try to ignore them, repress them, which can turn into resentment and bitterness and, and mistrust, and we'll end up getting increasingly cynical and jaded and disconnected, and we'll burn out, and we'll check out, and we'll get out, and nothing will ever change except that we'll have scars that we try to hide or we don't want to talk about, but that we wince every time we move. Friends, that's not the path God has for us. That's not the life God wants for us. What God wants for us is what Jesus told us in John 10.10 when he said, I have come that they might have life to the full. I have come that they might have life to the full. In Jesus' passage, today in the passage, Jesus talks about hypocrisy and integrity. He names the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and he offers a vision of integrity for all of us and especially those of us who claim to follow him. And and from this I glean at least two things. One, some things never change, unfortunately. Jesus has been talking about this for 2,000 years. Some things never change. But two, Jesus still offers a better way. To catch you up on the story, or previously, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus that was I enjoyed that one. I just need some theme music in the background. Previously, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus fed 5,000, 5,000 men, so probably about 15,000 people in total. And he walked on the sea to get to his disciples in a boat. And I so appreciated uh, Matthew's benediction reminder last week the key takeaways from that back half of Mark 6. Don't be afraid. God is with you, God will provide. Don't be afraid, God is with you, God will provide. This week's passage begins immediately on a note of tension. In, in chapter 7, verse 1, the, the Pharisees and some legal experts from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now Jesus has had dealings with the religious leaders before in Mark's gospel. In, in chapter 3, verse 1. After he healed a man on the Sabbath, we're told the Pharisees got together with the supporters of Herod to plan how to destroy Jesus. And then later in that chapter, some legal experts from Jerusalem accused Jesus of being possessed by the devil. So, you know, not particularly friendly encounters. Uh, so there's this note of tension from the get-go. And here the Pharisees and the legal experts, they, they spot Jesus' disciples Failing to wash their hands before eating, and they ask why Jesus allows this. Now, to clarify, this is not primarily about hygiene, but about ceremonial purity. From a hygiene perspective, you should still wash your hands before handling food. Just want to clarify those things. Ceremonial purity was about cleanliness and preparation to come before God. Okay? It, was, it was about paying due respect and honor to God. Uh, Back when we first encountered the Pharisees in Mark's gospel many months ago now, Matthew reminded us very helpfully that the Pharisees aren't this pantomime villain. They're not like a caricature of nitpickers, though that's sometimes what we can treat them as. They were some of the most devoted in their sincerity and in their desire to serve God to see God's reign come to pass. And the rules they observed, the rules that they wanted everyone to follow were usually derived from centuries of rabbinic tradition and interpretation and application. They were usually intended to give people some very tangible, practical instructions on what it means to live out God's law. That's what they were trying to do. And yet Jesus minces no words when he responds to them. He says Isaiah really knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He wrote, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And he gives another example then of a practice called korban, which the the, the Pharisees and the legal experts were encouraging. Now, in short, the commandment to honor one's parents was just that. It was one of the Ten Commandments, right? It was pretty important. It was more than just an expectation. This was one of the highest obligations in their culture, not least because it acted as a safety net for the vulnerable. So, honoring one's parents. But one of the practices that had arisen through these centuries of rabbinic tradition and interpretation was to name one's contributions or one's possessions as korban, which is a term to essentially dedicate it to God via a religious institution, a temple, and thus earmark that cash so it was no longer available to go toward the care of one's parents. It was kind of a way of getting out of that obligation by funneling it through the church. Now, on top of that, if the person wanted to get that money back, they would have to pay a fee to that same religious institution to free it back up. It was a financial and religious practice that was, like many sneaky financial practices today, technically legal, but most certainly prioritizing oneself and ignoring the intent of the law, the intent of God's law. And Jesus called this out as hypocrisy setting a particular moral standard for others that was never even a target for yourself. He said, in this way, you do away with God's word. And you do a lot of other things like that. This is not an isolated incident, Jesus is saying, and you know it, I know it. And then he turns to the crowd to make his point, which most scholars name is the main point of this passage in in the beginning of chapter 7. Listen to me, all of you, and understand Nothing outside of a person can enter and contaminate a person in God's sight. Rather, the things that come out of a person contaminate the person. Jesus is returning to that initial accusation leveled at the disciples that by eating with ritually unclean hands, they were then consuming ritually unclean foods, which then makes them unclean. See, in those days, ritual purity, whether because of sin or not, whether it had a moral or immoral judgment to it, Ritual impurity was treated like a germ, like something you caught through contact. And that's why they would keep lepers outside the city walls. It's why anyone who uh, became ritually unclean had to separate themselves for a period. That's not how Jesus looks at it. Instead, writes one theologian, Jesus taught that sin was like a cancer growing within us. That is far harder to deal with, for we cannot avoid it by avoiding infection from others. It needs radical spiritual surgery that will change our inner nature. Sometimes we associate baptism with the Spirit solely with spiritual gifts. The Bible associates it more with a changed nature, changed inner being, changed character. When, uh, when people with power and privilege get called out, especially when they're perpetrators of wrongdoing and abuse, they often don't resp- respond well. Uh, psychologist Jennifer Freyd came up with the acronym DARVO. Deny, attack, reverse victim, and offender. DARVO. Deny, attack, reverse victim, and offender. And she writes, I have observed in her practice that actual abusers threaten, bully, and make a nightmare for anyone who holds them accountable or asks them to change their abusive behavior. The attack will often take the form of focusing on ridiculing the person who attempts to hold the offender accountable. The offender rapidly creates the impression that the abuser is the wronged one, while the victim or concerned observer is the offender. Figure and ground are completely reversed. The offender is on the offense. The person attempting to hold the offender accountable is put on the defense. You may see that, and you may see that in in examples in the news, uh, in cases of sexual assault or domestic violence, or in many of the examples of spiritual abuse and manipulation but if we're honest maybe we even see it in in, in smaller ways in smaller doses in our own reactions when we get called out for something we might call it defensiveness we might try to point out well, why the other person who's bringing it up doesn't really know what they're talking about or you know well you did this thing you were wrong first and so on because the thing is we are all prone to hypocrisy to some degree we're all tempted to hold others to a particular standard that we do not hold ourselves to or with the same strictness that we apply to others One of the lessons I learned from someone I can't now remember, but one of the the lessons I often name in in marriage counseling is that we judge ourselves by our motivations while we judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our motivations while we judge others by their actions. I, I know why I did that. I mean, I was just, I was tired or, you know, this happened or insert excuse, reason, justification here. And yet so often we find it so hard to offer that same amount of empathy and understanding and grace to somebody else because what they have done has inconvenienced us or hurt us or disappointed us. We just know how we have been affected by their action. When we think hypocrisy is only out there, we may be missing the very point Jesus was trying to make when he talked about trying to take a splinter out of someone else's eye while ignoring the log in your own. This is the turn Jesus makes here in Mark as well. He shifts from a very particular religious conversation with the Pharisees and the legal experts to sharing a broader teaching with the crowd, and then he unpacks it with the disciples who ask him more about this riddle. They call it a riddle. He says to them, don't you understand either? Don't you know that nothing from the outside that enters a person has the power to contaminate? That's Because it doesn't enter into the heart, but into the stomach. And it goes out into the sewer. Remember, he's talking about eating with unclean hands. That's what he's talking about. And then Mark says, by by saying this, Jesus declared that no food could contaminate a person in God's sight. Actually, by saying this, Mark is declaring that Jesus was declaring all foods are clean. And we know this first because that doesn't seem to be the main point from Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. They're talking about food uh, that is that makes people unclean. But second, because the the debate about clean and unclean food, about the company that people would keep, was one that continued to dominate the early church. It was not done and dusted because Mark said so in in one of the first pieces of the New Testament ever written. Peter's vision from God and and, and his visit with Cornelius, the Roman centurion in the book of Acts, did not end the debate. Paul had to address it, and with the churches in Rome and Galatia and in Corinth, the leaders of the early church had to wrestle with it often. Mark's gospel was likely written around the time, right in the middle of a very live, unsettled, contentious conversation, and he, you know, he just he so just put this right right in here. He bound himself, what he did was he bound himself to the inclusion of God. Because when the answers aren't always clear, it takes courage to discern the path Jesus is taking us on, even and especially if we've never been there yet. Jesus does that sometimes. Jesus course corrects us be both as individuals and as a church because in our human fallibility and selfishness and maybe in our just in our misguided devotion to God, we've made something more important than it ought to have been. And by doing so, raised an obstacle preventing others from reaching God or let ourselves off the hook in loving God with everything that we have and everything that we are and do and say or loving our neighbors as ourselves. Sometimes we need Jesus to come in and correct. Point out where we are being hypocritical. Jesus does that often, actually. The antidote to hypocrisy, as I understand it from this passage, is integrity. Integrity Hypocrisy comes from this Greek term describing actors in a play, wearing a mask, pretending to be someone but actually being someone else. Integrity comes from the Latin word meaning whole. You get the word integer or a whole number from it. Well, you may be wondering, well, where did you find integrity in this passage? Well, what Jesus says in verse 20 is it's what comes out of a person that contaminates someone in God's sight. It's from the inside. From the human heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual sins, thefts, murders, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, insults, arrogance, and foolishness, all these evil things come from the inside and contaminate a person in God's sight. You might be reading that list and you might say, Well, those aren't those don't seem like thoughts, those are actions. Those are evil actions, right? The point is, in, in the Jewish anthropology of the day, the human, the human heart was the center of a person's life. It's where the will resided. Okay? It's what directed a person's thoughts and actions. Jesus wasn't talking about our feelings. That's how we understand the heart right now, right? It's the center of our feelings, our emotions. When Jesus is talking about the heart, Jesus is talking about our posture, about our orientation about our intention, about our will that then leads to our actions. We cannot always choose the things we feel, but what is in our control is what we will to do, what we do with those feelings. What comes out of us is from within that what Jesus called evil thoughts begin. It is what we choose to entertain, what we choose to consider, what we choose to give license to flourish, we may not actually commit sexual sins, however we may define them. We may not actually steal or murder or commit adultery and so on, but it is what we allow, it's what we give permission, what we actively encourage to grow and make a home in the center of our being that contaminates or makes clean in the sight of God. Now, let me be clear. This is not about how or whether God loves us. Okay? God loves you. God loves you. This is not about that. What Jesus is inviting us into is life to the full. A life lived for God and lived for others. It's a life that is whole. It's a life where all the parts are integrated, where all the parts are aligned with the goodness of God. It's all rowers rowing in the same direction. It's all the flowers and the trees and a garden stretching toward the same sun, integrity is not a state of perfection, okay? For Christians, integrity is a journey of integration for every one of us and every part of us as we follow and imitate Jesus. Integrity is not just rearranging the external so we look okay. Not about putting up a front. It's not about making sure we're checking off to-dos. Integrity is addressing our interior life where our deepest hopes and greatest fears reside and where we stash our trauma hoping it won't bother us anymore. In a room here in 2022 in D.C., I know that it is much easier for most of us to do things, to get busy doing things so we don't have to sit still with what's going on inside. I understand it, because maybe we're worried that if we stop for a moment, and if we stand still for a moment, and if we sit still for a moment, we'll never get back up. But we are not alone in that. You do not sit on your own in this. The Holy Spirit is with you, and if you invite us, we will be with you. Integrity requires self-examination and more than that, it requires God's revelation. In the words of Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a prayer of integrity. The work of integration that leads to integrity, including processing those triggers and traumas so that we don't just inflict our wounds on others, it's a lot harder than staying busy. It's a lot slower than just getting things done. It's more painful, certainly in the short run, than frenetic activity or constant talking without ever pausing to consider whether or how our words and actions align, how they align with the truth and life and hope and joy of God. But integrity and hypocrisy do not just affect us as individuals. It was to a group of people that Jesus leveled the charge of hypocrisy. Right? Those are the, these are the social and the systemic sins. The statesmen who declared all men equal while owning slaves. The politicians who tweet Bible verses while neglecting the poor and the immigrant. The churches who cultivate ideologies and make disciples that look nothing like Jesus whether in their racism and white supremacy or in their misogyny or in their homophobia. And so it is for us as a body, for us as a community. It's why we refuse to rest on our laurels. Oh, look, it's so great. All these people in the room. No, no. Superficiality is not the mark of spiritual maturity. We continue to press in to the hard work of refining that which God calls us to, particularly for us in this season as it pertains to race and sexuality, because we want to be and we want to be becoming a community that is as inclusive and welcoming as God is. Even before the various councils in the first century settled the matter of clean and unclean foods, which was the issue standing between the integration of Jewish and non-Jewish Christians, even before then, Mark was already planting his flag in the soil of God's kingdom embrace, God's kingdom provision, God's being enough for all. In the chapters before, Jesus heals those who are sick and in need. He touches, physically touches, those who are ceremonially unclean. He fed the 5,000. Most of them, I would be surprised if they washed their hands. In the passage we'll explore next week, Jesus interacts with a Gentile woman and feeds 4,000 more, most likely Gentiles. Though let me not preempt Matthew's work for next week. Mark was reporting what he saw Jesus doing and not just the external facts, but the deeper realities of what he was doing the revolution that he was beginning. And like any good author, Mark invites us into the story too. You alone have responsibility for what you do next. I cannot decide that for you. Your friends cannot decide that for you. Your significant other cannot decide for you. Your kids cannot decide for you. You decide for you. Our anchor verse for this part of Mark is Jesus saying in chapter 8, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So what is God asking you to say no to? In your pursuit of life. Because I know, y'all, like our lives are full. And they're not all full with 100% good things just a guess, if my own life is any indicator. To what is Jesus inviting us to say no to so we can say yes to life, to more life? What example will you be to others? What example will we be? And how might we get there? It is not an easy path. It is not always a comfortable path. Speaking up when you'd rather avoid conflict. Holding your tongue when you'd rather speak up. Forgiving when you'd rather hold the grudge. Staying present when you'd rather retreat. Allowing God to be your peace when everything in you is screaming anxiety doing the interior work of sitting with God and your pain and your trauma and your hurt long enough so that God's Spirit can speak God's truth over you and bring God's healing to you. Committing to a community of faith by showing up, by serving, by being present, and then as a community addressing our own inclinations to hypocrisy. Facing our own blind spots without defensiveness learning to be the body of Christ. I know it's not easy, but I know that that reality that we are stepping towards will be a better one for you, for everyone around you, and for our world as well. I want us to be able to say in the words of the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's life And there's wholeness there. And that is what God lays before us. Would you pray with me?